Scaling and growing a startup can be tricky and sometimes even mysterious. It requires leaders to have a breadth of knowledge on company building strategies across marketing, sales, product, and talent. The Startup Guide to Growth was created to be the definitive podcast on growth strategies for startups. Hosted by Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that you can use to scale your company through insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your startup? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as an investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Hi, my name is Rico Malazzi, and I'm Senior Director of Go-To-Market Operations at Sapphire Ventures. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Marie Gasse. Marie has specialized in building self-serve online sales and PLG go-to-market motions at enterprise technology companies, including Box and Confluent. On this episode, I explore with Marie the role of growth in enterprise tech companies, how a self-serve model can successfully work with other parts of the organization, what a good SDR compensation framework looks like, and the role of data science on go-to-market growth. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Marie, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You have a wealth of enterprise tech experience. Can you provide the audience with a little bit of background on the tech experience you have? Certainly. I like to go way back. Born and raised in the Bay Area, my parents immigrated from France, so kind of have that connection. Early in my career, I worked at Cisco, very enterprisey, entry-level marketing. Eventually found my way to Box, though, after going back to grad school. What was really cool about my experience at Box is I got to do kind of three jobs in the first three years. And that's part of this rotational program. So I worked in finance on our IPO. I worked in sales strategy and ultimately my third role. And then, you know, what I ended up doing for the rest of my time there was creating and leading our self-serve business unit as a general manager. So yeah, I spent six years at Box. And then two years ago, I joined Confluent as the VP of growth looking after a few different things, but with a, a bit of a bias on the bottoms up go-to-market motion. Awesome. I want to kind of go through the progression of your enterprise technology experience. And, and let's start with the role as GM head of online sales. What did you define as online sales? Was it anything that came inbound through the website? Were you proactively driving customers to that? And what were the metrics you were tracking? Yeah, it's a great question because it's actually not that straightforward to define like online sales or self-serve or growth. I will touch on kind of the really cool thing about that role was we had a wonderful org structure where I got to kind of bring together a bunch of different functions like design, product, engineering, marketing, analytics, uh, systems, all with the goal of driving self-serve revenue. So actually our definition of self-serve revenue evolved a little bit over the years, but ultimately, you know, we were really focused on customers who transacted online. So essentially, if they weren't signing a contract when they transacted, we called that online sales or self-serve. So very much, again, kind of the bottoms up go-to-market motion. In terms of what we tracked, I mean, metrics are the name of the game in this world. So a million different things. But you know, I like to think about it maybe a little bit of like a funnel view, like from pricing page visitors to signups to onboarding rates, upgrades, retention, etc. Our North Star, though, was ARR, so annual recurring revenue. So the idea is like we wanted to grow the pie of annual recurring revenue that we had as part of the self-serve business. So that takes into consideration retention. 
not just the acquisition of customers and the expansion. The other thing that we thought a lot about was how are we feeding the sales team? So we also tracked like what percent of you know new ARR that's contracted originated in the self-serve world. And that was a North Star metric for us as well. What were some of the key levers that you were able to pull to kind of influence all those different metrics you're tracking and those also those North Star metrics? Oh my gosh, so many. So everything from one of my favorite things to experiment with is pricing page, whether it's a pricing page or a download page or a signup page. Like it sounds pretty tactical, but there's so much impact that we could have like redoing our pricing page. And we did that at Box, which was awesome. And then as you kind of get, you know, down the funnel, like onboarding, what is your user's like first time experience in the product? How are you onboarding them? We did a bunch around upgrade flows. Like how are you kind of showing your user different parts of the product that may not be available in their current plan, you know, and then maybe letting them try it and then using that as a a lever to upgrade retention was a huge part. So, you know, things tactically like the cancellation experience, but really just like fundamentally understanding like what product improvements you want to make to you know, keep users being a little bit stickier. We can even go back to the very top of the funnel on the acquisition side, you know, so many levers out in the ether, SEO and web optimization being one of my favorites. So that's what I love about these growth roles about, you know, the self-serve world as well. There's so many like dials that you can tweak. And part of the challenge, I think, is like figuring out what are the dials that you want to tweak and you want to take, you know, maybe some bold experiments with, but always thinking like what's going to be going to have the biggest impact. Like it's so tempting to maybe tweak a million things along the way, but I like to really challenge the team to think, okay, like what are the big swings we can make that are maybe a little bit more provocative than we're comfortable with that could have like a huge impact on a North Star metric. Now, one of the things resonated in that answer is we actually did a previous episode with the head of design for Datadog and from a design element, he mentioned you know, giving the customer as full of exposure as possible to the to what the product can do to help entice them for that potential upgrade. So sounds like, like you said, kind of teasing on different features that you then may be able to upsell later on, I think is really, really key as well. I know today you're in a role titled the VP of Growth at Confluent. Could you give us a little bit more details on what that role entails? And then I would also love to get your perspective just of the growth role enterprise tech. I feel like in, in consumer, everyone kind of knows like growth hacking and a lot of you know social networks used it. But what is the role of growth in enterprise technology? Yeah, I'll start there. Actually, I will say it can mean anything. And I actually recently, you know, just you connected with and talked to VPs of growth at variety of tech companies, just to get a sense of like how they structure their orgs, you know, what metrics are most important, just do some best practices sharing. And the role really runs the gamut. You know, I've seen companies where growth is like a customer success role or companies where growth is, you know, really just focus on the acquisition side. Or, you know, what I'm seeing a lot of is the demand gen role is being retitled as a growth role, because maybe it's a little bit more of a sexy term in the industry right now. So the point is like growth can be anything. I'll kind of share with you what I view growth as and then what my role is here at at Confluent. So to me, like a growth role is all about like super data-driven. And really to me, it's the intersection of like very quantitative and data-driven and being a go-to-market function. I know that's pretty broad and still pretty nebulous, but those to me are like the two key like criteria that mean growth to me. I think actually, you know, it's pretty... Like it works pretty well here at Confluent. So I like to describe my role at Confluent like twofold. So really thinking a lot about our bottoms up developer led go to market. 
which you know certainly is very much product-led and self-serve in some ways. And then also a digital optimization across the board. So, you know, looking after our paid acquisition team, our webinars, our email nurture, et cetera. So really thinking about, you know, in all the different digital touch points, how do we optimize and how are we super efficient across all those touch points? But yeah, I have a line here. I said like an efficient go-to-market engine to drive pipeline and revenue. But then I just realized like that's so many jargon words in one sentence. But yeah, you know, it's certainly a fun role. I'm really glad that growth is a thing now. It certainly wasn't when I started my career because it really brings together what, what I find to be most exciting. Yeah, no, I agree. The second one you mentioned description is the one you put on the resume, right? That's yeah. <laughs> so I think at both of the companies, Box and Confluent, you know, very successful from an enterprise sales motion, then folding in a kind of a bottoms up motion, go to market motion. I like to say as every company scales, either they start at bottoms up or they start at enterprise sales, but eventually they converge and they do both at some point, typically to just expand the market opportunity. What have you seen as the biggest kind of mentality shifts that companies have to make if they've already started with an enterprise sales motion and then are going to add that bottoms up sales approach? Yeah, you know, actually what I would say is for both Confluent and Box and for many of these open source companies, there actually is an inherent bottoms up motion. So especially, you know, these open source type companies, like the developer adoption is what has made these companies. And similar for Box, Box like to think a little bit more of a pendulum that swung, if that's the right word, started very bottoms up, you know, like, hey, try the product, then maybe like swung a little bit on the enterprise and then realize, okay, in order to feed the enterprise, we need a really thoughtful kind of self-serve business. And so what I view at kind of all the companies, it's less about like creating the bottoms up. It's more about like how you're harnessing that momentum. And to speak a little bit about the mindset shift that you really want to see, it's like, how do we use that momentum? Not only to like, you know, get adoption in the market and all that good stuff, but also to make sure there's the way a pipeline essentially to feed kind of the sales team. So at Box, for example, we thought a lot about for our sales reps, how do we aggregate all the activity that's happening on Box that a company may not be aware of? Like your employees are using the product. There's multiple deployments across multiple departments, aggregating that for the sales team, and then them bringing that up to kind of the enterprise motion and using it as a key foothold into an account. So, you know, I think about Confluent too, like we're not really shifting the natural dynamic at all. It's just to me about, you know, continuing to focus on cultivating the product adoption and that becomes a foundation for a sales engagement. Mm -hmm. And are you primarily using like firmographic data to identify whether, hey, this should be a full self-serve sale or this should be, I guess it naturally happens too, or this should be handed off to our high touch sales team. How are you kind of demarcating that as they come through the funnel? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this in all my roles. To me, it's really like the customer's choice. And that's what we need. Like, you don't want to force if someone in a Fortune 500 wants to transact online, maybe there's a line of business that just wants to start using a product. Like, we cannot prevent them from doing that. That's counter to kind of like the fundamentals, I think, of these growth roles and self serve roles. What I do like to think about a lot is like potential. So, in terms of like, do we want salespeople spending time? with a prospect, I like to think about, well, what is the potential value of that customer? And that's where you know you make those investment decisions. Like, do we want to have this account owned by a strategic AE or not? Or is it you know, more of a self-serve account? So I use potential and you, know, you can measure that in a number of different ways based on company uh, as a marker for you know, how you invest sales resources and customer success resources. But in terms of like where we direct customers or prospects in the funnel, to me, like any account 
like getting a self-serve presence or a trial or whatever product adoption in kind of an organic way is, is great. So like never really want to add any friction to that. That makes sense. In the organizations you partner with from a growth perspective, product, customer success, and even sales, what are the types of changes they may have to go through to kind of embrace this kind of growth channel that you develop for companies? Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. I think there's probably three foundational shifts. The first one is that, you know, just getting everyone on board that you're leading with the product. And so making it incredibly engaging, really easy to get started on. Enterprise worlds, that can be a little counterintuitive, you know, that like you start with this frictionless, easy to use, like very kind of friendly interface that can be a little bit of, of a shift. Both at Box and Confluent, that hasn't been much of a shift just because there's a lot of like roots in user. So that's been nice. The second shift I would say is around usage. So like usage, adoption, consumption, activation, whatever you want to call it, like actual usage of the product has to be a priority for both your post-sales teams, but also actually your sales teams. Like one of the key mistakes you see is like overselling on a contract or too many licenses. And then, you know, you end up having potentially like a retention issue down the line. So making sure your customers are using the product and enjoying the product as soon as possible has so many downstream impacts. And so that's a pretty enormous shift. I think, you know, with sales, kind of the third key shift is for the sales team, making sure that the self-serve channel is being viewed as a source of pipeline. The self-serve business, it's really an efficient way of acquiring like a lot of small customers, a lot of small deployments. And in theory, that allows the sales team to focus on higher potential accounts, you know, selling million dollar deals or something like that. But you know, you really don't want the two channels to be competing. And I've seen that in the past for sure. So making sure that you know, self-serve is viewed as, hey, we're in a really efficient way getting footholds in all these different accounts. And then you can, you know, based on the potential of that account, run with it and hopefully sell a giant deal. And that positioning, I think, is incredibly key. Overall, what I love about this though is like if you think about these three shifts, like they're so pure. Like they're all of a sudden the incentives for the company are really to truly foundationally make your customers like get value out of your product. So there's something so pure about that, that I love. It's like my metrics are going to look good if people want to use the product and are getting value from it and are using more of it. And that alignment of incentives is just, it's the best. And so that's probably one of the key reasons I love this type of function. No, that's great. And I think another interesting point you mentioned is that early aha moment, because as easily as they came in the door, they can leave the product as well. I mean, it's kind of like the double-edged sword of of having product when growth is, you know, and cloud in general is to become a little bit easier to move vendor to vendor. So that wonderful experience and that, that immediate value, I think is more critical than ever to build into your product. You know, I know you've worked with SDR teams in the past. And one of the things that always come up with a lot of companies that we work with and just in general is compensation framework for SDRs. Obviously, everyone wants to create sales at the other end, but SDRs sometimes don't have full influence of it. So are there any core pillars that you know, you've know you seen in your work experiences that have worked well to keep in mind, whether it's just keeping it simple or, or other things of that nature? Yeah, I love this question. I have gotten to actually get involved in SDR compensation, both at Box and Confluent. And so I get really excited because I think, I don't know if behavioral economics is the right word, but I just think it's such a cool puzzle, you know, aligning incentives and, but not overcomplicating. So I have kind of put together, I have my like core tenants of SDR compensation. 
So I'll share with you, you know, what those are. So my first is it has, you know, the compensation, what SDRs are being comped on has to be aligned with company priorities. So for example, if a company is really focused on, oh, we need to acquire a bunch of new logos, like that should probably be one of the elements in the comp. The second tenant is simple. It's probably the most important tenant, actually, like folks can't understand their comp plans and it happens all the time. Like, you know, why did we go through all this is trouble to put it together. So I like to say like, you have two maximum three drivers of comp, but ideally two. So like, Hey, you get 50% of your variable comp is on this metric and 50% is on another metric. But I've certainly seen companies like have so many nuances and, and elements and that then people just don't really know how they make money. And then you, you lose the whole point. The third is actionable. Like you have to comp your SDRs on what they can actually impact. You know, a lot of times I've seen companies comp on revenue, for example, but you know, if your deal cycles are, are very long, the SDR probably doesn't have that much impact on revenue or the actual, you know, when the deal closes. And so, you know, making sure that an SDR can look at their comp plan and be like, okay, I can make an impact on these metrics. The fourth tenant is probably maybe the least popular. I'll say, don't leave money on the table is what I call it. So I do care a lot about it because I think it's really important in a growing business. I think you often have a tension between sales and SDRs around, you know, the quality of the opportunities that you're passing, for example, or the meetings that you're setting up. And I think that's a really healthy tension, but at a high growth company, I think I'd rather have SDR teams pass more volume. So we're not leaving any stones unturned. So that's a little bit of a bias I have. And then finally, you know, the fifth one I'd say is just objective. Like the measurement has to be straightforward. That's something that can't be gamed. Easier said than done, but certainly worth calling out. Yeah. SDRs and sales executives and individuals in general can get sometimes quite creative on totally. how to get there. <laughs> Very mission-driven. Another area within growth that I know you've kind of overseen, whether it's at your current role or prior roles, an activity you call customer lifecycle activities. How did you broken that down into like first principles? What is that? And what like departments within the organization does that work most closely with? Yeah, I think so. Again, life cycle like growth could be like a million different things. I've seen it be, you know, very top of funnel or like very full funnel. I'll use the product led journey, I think, because that one is the most applicable across companies in terms of how you think about life cycle. But I'll kind of share, you know, the different phases I think of the life cycle in a product led journey. And the one thing I'll say is, the levers and the teams that are involved kind of shift as you you know move along in that journey and that's why the cross functional piece is so important with product led you know you have your website is a key part your paid media team is a key part your customer success team might be important there's just so many teams that are going to touch these customers throughout their life cycle and making sure that everyone's pointed in the right direction fully aligned just like so key it's not sexy to talk about that like obviously everyone needs to work together and be collaborative and be cross-functional, but yeah, I just can't emphasize more how important it is in this particular example. So the way I view the product led journey, there's pre-sign up. So that could be a lot of what happens on, you know, the digital media side, paid media side on your website, anything to get people to your website and hopefully signing up for your product. The second phase I view is sign up to onboarding. So, you know, you can call that first time user experience or onboarding, this is like, well, someone signed up for your product. How are they like getting up to speed on how to use the product and the value they're going to get from it? 
Then there's onboarding to activation. So, okay, someone understanding the product, you know, understanding what the areas that they're going to use, that's one thing, but are they actually using it on a regular basis? That's probably the most important phase, I think, in terms of long-term value with the customer, like getting them to use the product on a regular basis, that activation is so important. And, you know, to the point you made earlier, that's how you get sticky. Like if someone ends up using a product day to day, it's embedded in like critical use cases in their company, then, you know, you might not have a retention issue ever because the product becomes so core. Expansion is great. That That's when, you know, if you have a highly active account, then expansion isn't too complicated. What are the additional features that they might need or additional use cases within the account? And then obviously retention is once you have folks using it, how do you get them retaining the product? I think the full view, the full journey and having the incentives be on that full journey are really key. Like having one team focus on generating a bunch of signups and that team being disconnected from the team that's thinking about, okay, we want people to stay in the product. That's not going to work. And so really that whole view is what I, I think is ideally how you set the teams up. So what's the key output for that team? Is it like webinars on new features? Like what is the key activities? For which team? For the post-acquisition digital engagement lifecycle. Oh, tons of stuff. I mean, it, it depends also how you, you define acquisition. So if an acquisition is a sign-up, then so much of what's going to happen is going to be, you know, onboarding in product and via email and maybe with a light handhold from a human or an SDR, for example. Or if it's on, you know, you define an activated account as acquisition, then it's on, you know, delivering more use cases, working on product features, kind of what we talked about, like showing other product features, maybe teasing them out and getting folks to maybe upgrade plans. So I think it totally depends. But to me, the key functions that are focused across the board on the journey, you know, are the acquisition side, like the website and, you know, the ads, for example, that you might be running to generate momentum towards the website in product. So again, another hot function, product growth, like what are the things you're doing in your signup flow, in your onboarding flow, your maybe activation checklists, your upgrade flows. And then you have often a digital CS team. So sometimes that involves, you know, people interacting directly, but sometimes it's, you know, automated ways to identify an account that's at risk. And, you know, are there like office hours that you can bring an account to, to help them, you know, be more successful within your product? Or are there kind of emails, kind of an email marketing program that you can do to continue reminding people of the great use cases they can get with your product? So there's so many dials to move. I think, I guess that's what makes it fun. Yeah. And I'm assuming that digital CS team runs parallel to the conventional CS team, who is more of a high touch kind of customer success team. Yeah, totally. In the ideal world, I'm sure I have a slide somewhere on this. It's a layered approach. So ideally you have this like really strong digital, somewhat automated layer of customer success that probably all customers get, you know, and then as the accounts get bigger and maybe more high potential, more strategic, then you layer on, you know, some of that higher touch. But to me, it's not an or, it's an and. So you just kind of have these layers that you that are thoughtful and not overbearing, but that you kind of pile onto each other and that work in a, in a cohesive way. Yeah. I was going to say it's kind of critical that the transitions to each one of those layers is kind of smooth and not cumbersome or and that they're clean. So, you know, one of the other areas you're obviously focused on as a professional is demand generation. I think if anything has happened in 2020, it's kind of changed how enterprise technology companies have approached demand generation. What have you seen work or not work and you know any potential long-term changes in, around demand generation just generally for enterprise technology companies? 
Yeah. None of my opinions on demand gen are popular. So just a like caveat. popular opinions, controversial. Yeah. Just because I think I, I don't think I'm a traditional marketer. I don't even really identify as a marketer, which might sound crazy because I am in a marketing org, but here goes. So to me, it's all about investment in tracking measurement and testing. So like, what are the foundations you need to put in place so that you know exactly what's working, what's not, and that you can test a bunch of stuff. So to me, it's like we can no longer be in a world where you're just launching a campaign and then, you know, saying, well, we don't really know what the impact is, but we think it's resonating. Like that to me is no longer acceptable. And I love that now we have the tools and the infrastructure to have that accountability. So for me, what really works in the demand gen area is I love SEO. I mentioned that. I think it's a little bit of a black box, but it's so powerful. ROI-based paid acquisition. So just being really maniacal about being able to understand like we deployed these dollars, it led to you know these inquiries or these form fills, and then what is the downstream impact and what is the ROI? I think spending dollars without understanding what the impact is, is really dangerous. And that's when you get bloated budgets. I love website testing, love A-B testing. So anything you can do, testing a new pricing page, testing a new homepage, new CTAs, I think that feels tactical, but it's, it's actually very, very impactful. And thoughtful email nurtures, that's something that, again, maybe not as glamorous as some folks might think, but just a really good email marketing program that's really thoughtful about the database, not you know being too many touch points. I think that's awesome. What doesn't work, if I might, I think there's a few things that I just haven't found to be that productive. Content syndication, I think it's a little bit of a thing of the past. List buys, I think people probably won't fight me on that one. Third-party prospecting agencies, I'm not a big fan of that. That stuff definitely can work for the record, but I think you can use those calories and those dollars in a much more impactful way. That's super interesting. On the paid acquisition front, I guess two questions. On the paid acquisition front, have you seen those dynamics changing? Am I going to start seeing enterprise technology ads on TikTok? Totally. Yes, you are. Really? Totally. Yeah. Not that I'm not in that game yet. Uh, <laughs> and trust me, like I'm uncomfortable with it too, if I sense uh, kind of your discomfort. But, you know, I see such great success on LinkedIn is kind of obvious. It's a professional, but on Facebook, on Twitter, I even, I haven't worked, I haven't launched Instagram in my roles, but I, I get targeted on Instagram now Absolutely. for, you know, yeah. SaaS and I, I don't mind it. So I think like wherever people are, and now we're getting such great, I mean, there's certainly privacy implications. Don't get me wrong, but such great Intel on like, Oh, you know, here's a certain persona in on Twitter or on Facebook and being able to target them where they spend their time. So yeah, TikTok, here we come. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to see the creative TikTok advertisements. Uh, I'm scared, honestly, but yeah. I mean, I do like the billboards on 101, but yeah. It, I do too, actually. We had a long, at Box, we had a long standing billboard. And like the day that we finally kind of convinced our CEO to let it go, you know, to not renew, was, it was bittersweet. Because uh, yeah, it felt like a really kind of, I don't know, meaningful part of the company. Yeah, it is. It's like a rite of passage. Our portfolio companies had a funny one segment on uh, the 101. It said like, welcome to LA. And then it's like, this is what bad data causes, you know, because he's- I love that one. I love the that one. City. Yeah, it was great. That's a great billboard. <laughs> segment customer here. So big fan. Awesome. So one of the other things is I wanted to also talk about, and I don't know if in your any of your roles you've had this, but kind of the role of analyst relations in enterprise tech. May not have an opinion on it, but unfortunately, I have opinions on many things I know very little about. <laughs> I haven't had analyst relations under my purview. I will say, you know, as, as someone again who can be opinionated and sometimes critical, it does seem incredibly powerful. 
So we had an amazing analyst relations person at Fox. We have an amazing analyst relations program here at Confluent. And I don't fully understand it. And I, but I do see that, you know, analysts have an incredible amount of power. And so, you know, being thoughtful of, of uh, investing in that function seems to really reap some pretty incredible rewards. So that's one where I, I'm like, I don't totally understand it, but I respect it. So on things like G2, which kind of position themselves as like a next-gen Gartner. Is that owned by your team, the digital acquisition team, or is that owned by another team? That's owned by like our comms team. Yeah. Who has analyst relations, public relations, et cetera. Yeah. Cool. One of the things that I think VP of growth and and it definitely kind of came out in this conversation we had is it, it's very data-driven. So can you talk about the role of data science? Do you have those people on your team? Are you working with you know, data science teams that are maybe sitting somewhere else in the organization? And how are you using them to help kind of improve your processes and go-to-market strategy? Yeah, I cannot emphasize enough, like the partnership with whether you call it analytics or data science for these growth roles for product-led growth, et cetera. It's incredible. They here at Confluent, they do not sit in my team, though having talked to a bunch of VPs of growth, there are definitely folks out there who kind of make that a requirement in their role. And I think it definitely makes sense. So yeah, partnership with a data science team is a game changer. You know, so much of what allows us to know what we're doing right or not is the tracking, the measurement, the ROI, et cetera. And all that infrastructure is generally built by the data science counterparts. You know, I'll share a few examples of how we partner with data science here. Like one project we did is understanding the value, the dollar value of a signup. Knowing that allows us to be really thoughtful about how we optimize our paid acquisition efforts to be ROI positive. So that was a cool project that we partnered with them on. Also on lead scoring, you know, that can be a game changer. Lead scoring is often a controversial topic, but, you know, having a good partnership with data science makes it incredibly powerful. I will say I have a, like a plug for partnership with a data scientist is, you know, actually working in partnership. I've seen at other companies, like it be a little bit of like, oh, can you just pull this data do this analysis, just come back to me. And I think, you know, that's gross underuse of uh, the talent on those teams. They're not here to pull like last month's web traffic numbers or pipeline numbers. I actually think in the business, you know, certainly on my team, we have to be able to pull those numbers ourselves. Like that's part of our job. But then in terms of data infrastructure, you know, deep analyses to understand, you know, what strategic decisions to make or how you want to measure your impact or experiment design is one thing that we often talk about. That's where your data scientists can really shine. So yeah, I'm, I'm a fangirl of that team. No, I, I agree with you. But like you said, being having some element of self-sufficiency, right? So you're not overtaxing that group. You mentioned design experimentation, I think, just recently. Experiment design, yeah. Sorry, experiment design. What is that? That is essentially when we want to do any sort of testing. When we're like, okay, we want to launch an experiment. Maybe it's one web page versus another that we're A-B testing, or maybe, you know, we want to test a different follow-up experience. You actually, there's so many nuances to how you structure and measure and actually get to a point that you can say, okay, this was better than this. And so it's way more complex than at first glance. And so really partnering closely with the team to understand like, what are the populations we're sampling? Like, what is a success metric? How much time do we need to go by to be statistically significant? Because if it's going to take six months, like we don't have time for that. And maybe it's just, I'm a nerd, but getting into those details and working with that team to understand, okay, we, we actually can't set up an experiment a way that we wanted to, because, you know, we won't actually get the answer. I think it's, it's a really cool puzzle to solve. What do you think is like a healthy number of experiments for a product-led growth company 
a company should run? Is it like one a month, multiple? Oh, way more. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different properties you can experiment on, you know, on a certain web page, in product, in like your follow-up experience, in, you know, subject line of your email nurture. So, you know, a lot. I'd like to say where you're running 10 plus at once would be great. So we have, you know, on some of our teams, we have like number of experiments per quarter we want them to run, but there's so many different things, you know, to experiment on. So ideally there's, there's just a ton happening. That's interesting that kind of use that as a core KPI um, Yeah, kind of incentivizes that continuous evolution. This has been a fabulous conversation on all things PP growth, growth in general as a yeah. role. And I think it's becoming, you know, paramount in every company, because if you don't have product-led growth motion today, you most likely are going to have one in the future. So I like to end these conversations with something that has nothing to do with about the conversation we just had, although this is somewhat tangential, but just to kind of provide the audience with a little bit outside knowledge on you. What is your favorite, I'll give you an option. What is your favorite consumer or enterprise tech solution device today, if you had to pick one? I feel so basic saying this, but Slack at least from a work perspective, it's like completely changed how I work. It's wild. Like I don't really check email very often anymore, which isn't a good thing. I do that most of my- goal with Slack. So I'm yeah, but I mean, it means still people are still sending me emails. So I should probably check them. So I do, yeah, most of my work in Slack all day. It's a little love hate because it drives me crazy, you know, getting, coming back from a meeting and having like 150 Slack notifications or whatever. The other thing I'll say, like, if I may separate from kind of the productivity tools I use, but just in terms of as a, you know, professional and like what I like to use to interact with our prospects, I'm a big fan of web chat. So, you know, there's a few like drift or intercom or qualified. I just find it to be such a better way to interact with prospects and a very modern way to do so. People don't really want to talk on the phone anymore. So a live chat, I think is just a great alternative. So I'm a big fan of that as well. Is that all human behind it? Or is there some elements of AI? I can tell you the way we do it. We don't fake, we don't do fake humans. Some companies do. So we have some like automation where it's, you know, some kind of intro questions from the bot to understand like what you're interested in. But certainly a lot of folks have like fake humans, you know, where it's a bot kind of masquerading as a human until they get, you know, maybe enough intent to warrant it being routed to a person. Not quite sold on that yet, but I certainly like the idea of, you know, asking a bunch of a couple of questions up front to get people in the right place. Yeah. I think it's solution specific too. Like I literally purchased my renters insurance by communicating with a bot on Lemonade, but it was like a simple enough, like, totally. I didn't mind it being a bot. Actually, I somewhat appreciated it that it was just quick and easy. Yeah. Maybe I've become antisocial, but I don't really want to, if I don't have to interact with folks and kind of my own purchase decisions, I'm, I'm usually pretty happy. Yeah, exactly. No, this was a really great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. And if people want to kind of connect with you, where's the best place? LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. I don't have much of a presence on Twitter, but yeah, shoot me a note on LinkedIn. Always happy to to kind of share ideas and best practices. So awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Marie. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Startup Guide to Growth. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we invite you to visit sapphireventures.com for detailed show notes, additional company building resources, and information on how you can connect with Sapphire Ventures and our team. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google so that other operators and entrepreneurs can find our show. And make sure to tune into next week's episode to discover the latest trends, techniques, and strategies for startup success. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.